Well, with about uh, a little over four chapters to go in the book of Mark that we've been in for a little while, um, I started praying about three weeks ago or so that the Lord might give me some idea as to where to go next. I wanted to go into the Old Testament because I've been trying to do that for lo all these years, go New Testament, Old Testament, New Testament, Old Testament, so we can get, again, the full counsel of God's Word and stay balanced. Uh, the Old Testament comprises two-thirds of the Bible, and yet it is all but, uh, when it comes to preaching in the Church of Jesus Christ, it's all but absent um, very frequently. And that's a travesty because 66% of the Bible is all about Jesus. He said so himself on the road to Emmaus before there was a New Testament. He talks about the writings the prophets, and the fathers. And that they bore testimony of him, Jesus. So I'm, I don't know for sure yet, but I'm leaning toward the book of First Samuel. Um, it's a longer book. And I was thinking just real casually one morning for some reason that you know, you never know how long it's going to take you to get through a book. At least I don't. I don't map out how I'm going to do this book. I'm going to cover these verses this week and lay it out like that. Um, so I have no idea, but I was thinking, you know, it is a, it's a long book, like I said, and it could, it could possibly be the last book that I ever preach on here at this church just because it's such a long book and, you know, I'm not going to be here forever um, unless the Lord does something really crazy which would be unprecedented, but I don't expect that to happen. So at any rate, just every now and again, if you think about it, if you're even reading in First Samuel by any chance on your trek through the Bible, maybe just shoot up that prayer and go, Lord, you know, let Pastor Bill know if this is where we're supposed to go next. But for the time being, we are yet again in the Gospel of Mark. We're still in chapter 10, and we're picking up in verses 35, and we'll get through verse 45, unless the Lord should return in the midst of it, which would be just fine with me. But thinking about this this week, which, like I said, it's been a, it's been a very hectic week and all, and yet um, in the midst of all of that, I think, uh, I don't think, the Lord was certainly faithful to minister to my own spirit and soul as I was preparing this message today. And I got a kick out of it, and you'll see why I'm saying that later, even though it's kind of the preacher's nightmare in the first service that Pastor Brent's alluded to not too long ago, and Pastor Ben, about when you know the preacher kind of does something or says something that's supposed to be humorous, and there's like nothing. Even the crickets aren't making any noise, you know. And so you kind of start going, okay. <laughs> anyway, uh, that's to set you up so that later on, when you might think you're supposed to laugh, exactly. Just even if you don't know what's, <laughs> I'll feel really good, and it's all about me this morning, right? Yeah. Okay. Enough of this nonsense. Contrary to what I, what I think, and I, again, I'm kind of prone to these generalizations that I throw out there a lot, that the normal understanding of at least the main characters of the scriptures that, that a lot of people have who know anything at all about the scriptures is that we tend to get in our minds uh, this, this buildup of what super-duper extraordinary human beings they were. And so when we think of them, you know, the, 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 the unfortunate part of that is that we set them up 
on these pedestals and they do things and they do extraordinary things and all that. And we think, well, yeah, that's them. I mean, they were there. They experienced God firsthand or they were walking with Jesus and they were, I mean, you know, that's not who we are. And so we, we just have this idea that they're sort of these super duper saintly kinds of Christians. Well, what I think that has been really clear as we've been going through the gospel of Mark, seeing people, real people through the inspired lens of Mark's camera is that the chosen people, meaning those chosen, handpicked by God himself, by Jesus, to lead the charge after he is gone were very real. They were very thick. (laughs) They were very flawed, and yet God made it work. And the thought that was interesting to me yesterday morning was that the list of names of those, again, that we might consider super saints, we find in the book of Hebrews in chapter 11. And in fact, it's kind of a common, a common uh, title, not anything official or anything, but over the years, of, for chapter 11 is Faith's Hall of Fame. Well, even if you read the book of Hebrews, it's, you know, they are, there are a, a, quite a few people listed by name, but they're all Old Testament people. And then we get into the period then from Jesus forward, and all of a sudden, there's no, nobody is named specifically. We get just a general, generalizations. We get these, these generalities without names of, nevertheless, the faithful, the diligent, the persevering followers of Christ. And I think purposely nameless, so that, again, we would just kind of take people down off their pedestals and realize that the people of of Hebrews living in Jesus' day were extraordinary, but they were all very normal human beings with weaknesses and foibles and and hang-ups and everything else. Listen to what we read in Hebrews chapter 11 about the people in this day. Women received back their dead by resurrection, and others were tortured not accepting their release, meaning they were given the option. Renounce this, this, this fake Messiah, and you can go back and live your life any old way you choose. You don't? We're going to execute you. And it says they didn't accept their release. Why? So that they might obtain a better resurrection. And others experienced mockings and scourgings, and yes, also chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were tempted. They were put to death with the sword. They went about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute. I mean, they were so poor, they didn't even have clothing. They were afflicted and they were ill-treated. And I love the parenthetical comment that is then made, kind of summing it up, about these faithful individuals. They were people of whom the world was not worthy. And so here we are, we're in the Gospel of Mark, and Jesus is walking the earth. And so this morning I want to begin by a little way of review with, again, some of the lowlights of what I call the dirty dozen, those hand-picked twelve. In chapter 9, you'll remember that Jesus hears the dirty dozen arguing about which one of them is the greatest in the kingdom? No ego problems there, eh? 
Then later on, and just a little while later on, in chapter 10, earlier in the chapter that we're in, Peter feels compelled. We talked about this in the last couple of weeks. Peter felt compelled to remind Jesus of, of everything that they had given up for him. And implicit in his, and actually not so implicit in his question to Jesus is, so tell me again what we're going to get out of this? What's in this for me? And then after this, and more, which we've discussed over the past several weeks, Jesus has the most revealing, the most detailed talk with those 12 now about what lays ahead. In Mark 10:33, Behold, we're going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles. They will mock him. They will spit on him and scourge him, and kill him, and three days later he will rise again. Now, in my Bible, my, my, just my physical Bible here, the way it's laid out, and I don't know how yours is, but just something that the publishers put in there, there's a break, a spatial break with a little subtitle between verses 33 and 34 and then verse 35. Okay, That break shouldn't be there at all. And the reason that it's important that we don't, when we're reading this, see a break there is because it means that we are supposed to take what I just read, verses 33 and 34, about the details of what lays ahead for Jesus with the passion, and we are supposed to take that now and weave that right into the very next pericope. So verse 35, Jesus just gets done telling them, about what's going to happen to him. And James and John, the two sons of Zebedee, came up to Jesus saying, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. Really? Not, hey, Rabbi, do you think... (laughs) I feel so silly asking. Do you think you could do us a favor? No, teacher... We want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. You got it? Hmm. Wow. So, let's talk about James and John, the sons of Zebedee. We were first introduced to these two brothers back in chapter 3 of this book, where we were informed that Jesus nicknamed them, even as he had nicknamed Cephas. He gave him another name by the name of Peter. Why? Peter, a rock. And we talked about that when we were way back on Peter and the rock and all of that. But Jesus calls the sons of Zebedee what I think is a very cool nickname, especially in the original of Boanerges. Hey, Boanerges. But we're told in the text that it means even cooler, the sons of thunder. Come on. If I were a motorcyclist, and I'm not, I'm a cyclist, we don't wear leathers with what are called your colors. Right? Bicyclists know that. Cyclists know that. Right? I can see that the sons of thunder. I mean, these just got to these got to be bad, tough, big dudes. James and John. And remember, they were fishermen, right? So they weren't exactly, you know, like uh, uh, Jacob was described as a smooth man. You take that however you want. No, that's true. You go look it up. I remember when I preached on Jacob and Esau. Esau, the manly man, and Jacob, the smooth man. Wow. It's okay. Well, they're nicknamed the Sons of Thunder. 
Now, in what is very late-breaking, so late-breaking, I'm sure that none of you are even aware of this, there was a rare archaeological find in a dig outside of Telamon just, just yesterday on the shores of the Sea of Galilee where somebody happened to wander into this cave and they found an ostraca, which is a, a shard of pottery, which they used to use in lieu of paper and put you know, paintings and writings on them and everything else. And some scholars believe that on this ostraca is a picture of James, one of the sons of thunder. Come on. They were fishermen, right? I, they had, they had ink, okay. And look at that. What? It, let me see that again. Look how cool that is. You got like a big face. He's lightning in his hand. He's like, ah. Oh. Okay. There was no ostracan. Okay. In case you didn't put that together, I can just see you sharing with your friends. Do you know what they found this weekend? Don't go there. Okay. Well, why such a title? Why such a nickname? We're not told directly, but let's look at some of the incidents that we are told about concerning John and James that might give us some light on their new nickname. It was John who first tells Jesus, we, we were in this not, not too many weeks ago, it was John who first goes up to Jesus and says, Jesus, there's this guy out here, he's not one of us. He's not part of the very hip and cool dirty dozen, and he's out there casting out demons. And I went up to him and I said, hey, dude, you're like a nobody. You've got to quit doing this. But he didn't quit doing it. He's pretty worked up about it. Well, Jesus actually corrects him for even attempting to do so. You see, they were, who knows what, protecting their territory or maybe protecting Jesus' territory. But in doing so, if they had succeeded in stopping this guy who wasn't of them, according to Jesus, they would have been hindering something that God was doing for the kingdom of heaven. Well, there's another occasion. Jesus is planning to go from Galilee to Jerusalem. And Jesus intended to go Right straight, you know, the shortest distance is the distance between two points, a straight line. So Jesus is tending to go through Galilee, Jerusalem, and you got Samaria laying right in the middle. Well, we know about Samaria and Samaritans and the Jews and the wonderful relationships they had. The Jews couldn't stand Samaritans and the Samaritans couldn't stand the Jews. And in fact, Jews so despised Samaritans that the typical Jew, if they were going from Galilee to Jerusalem, they would go way out of their way to go around Samaria just to get to where they were going, inconveniencing themselves in a longer trip and everything else. Because they believed that even to step foot on Samaritan soil would defile them from their worship and everything else as Jews. Jesus says, we're in Galilee, i got to get to Jerusalem, and we're going the shortest distance, which is straight through Samaria. Well... This is what Luke records for us in Luke chapter 9. When the days were approaching for his ascension, he was determined to go to Jerusalem, and he sent messengers on ahead of him, and they went and entered the village of the Samaritans to make arrangements for him. But they did not receive him, meaning the Samaritans. Why? Because they were traveling toward Jerusalem. When his disciples James and John saw this, the sons of thunder, they said, I love this. Lord, do you want us to call down fire on them and destroy them? Now, 
Okay, this is just me. This is not inspired. But I picture, I picture that bubble over Jesus' head, wondering what he was really thinking. Okay, maybe he's like, really? Wow, I didn't know you could do that. This could be interesting. Give it a shot. Okay. No, no, he, he doesn't do that. Instead, Jesus turns and rebukes them. And he says, you do not know what kind of spirit you are of. Ow! That is not a compliment. For the Son of Man did not come to destroy men's lives, but to save them. My translation, with my apologies to the writers of Top Gun, gentlemen, your egos are writing checks your body can't cash. (laughs) The Sons of Thunder. It's kind of coming together now, maybe. So, just out of curiosity, I thought, I'm going to see what some other people say about the Sons of Thunder here. And I, <laughs> I stumbled onto a blog, and I just, so I went to it out of curiosity, and they mentioned a particular view of the Sons of Thunder that I think was tongue-in-cheek. I really hope it was tongue-in-cheek. That perhaps they were called the Sons of Thunder because being fishermen and being alone in the band of brothers and eating lots of bread and fish and new wine, which was more than likely carbonated, had certain postprandial proclivities. That means after-dinner habits, as men sometimes have together. (laughs) And so maybe James and John were notable for the Sons of Thunder. Okay, anyway, that, of course, is speculative, okay? Don't repeat that outside these walls. You see, good exegesis does not have to be boring. But you shouldn't always share everything either. Well, okay, let me, let me get us back here. How does this help us understand the text better? And that is the point of all this. There was a reason why Jesus gave them such a potent nickname, as to actually record it for us. That's not there as just, you know, something just to fill space. Nicknames, don't nicknames tend to come from, from something to do with the individual who, who has either earned or received or maybe even named themselves a nickname out of some desire that's kind of revealing about, about their temperament or something about their personality? I mean, maybe you work in a place, right? And somebody comes in and he's kind of known by the, the people where they work. He's known as Smiley. Okay. Oh, here comes Smiley. Now that could be a good nickname, a compliment, because the guy's always just so stinking happy. So he just, they kind of nicknamed him Smiley. Hey, Smiley, how you doing, Smiley? On the other hand, it could be that he's, because that he's such a wretched crab all the time, they sarcastically have named him Smiley. Oh, here comes Smiley. (laughs) Okay. It might tell us something. About the individuals. Take Bubba Watson, okay? No, you take him. Uh, he's, a, he's a PGA Tour professional golfer. He's a great guy. He's one of my, my, uh, my big heroes. He wears a half a million dollar watch on his left hand. I knew you wanted to know that. Um, he didn't buy it. It was given to him <laughs> for advertisement purposes. Half a million dollars for a watch. Can you imagine? Mine was a fraction of that. What time is it? Anyway, he was named, he was nicknamed Bubba. His real name is Lester. I kind of understand now the name Bubba. <laughs> I'm not sure. Anyway, sorry, boy, focus. 
Bubba's dad, when he was born, was quite big. He was a bruiser, and so his dad named him for the Pro Bowl NFL player Bubba Smith. You see, it tells us something about Bubba Watson. Now, there's an individual in this church who, in the pretty recent past, and some reason it's kind of sticking, that I walked in one morning and I was greeted with, Hey, pumpkin! <laughs> no, I'm serious. And uh, like I said, it's kind of stuck now, so I kind of enjoy hearing it. I don't know what that says about my temperament or where that even came from, okay? I just wanted to mention that. But all right, so getting back on track again, sort of. So one thing that is true about me that did come from something that you would know about me, if you knew me back then when I was like eight years old, was that I was known in my neighborhood as Cubby. Because I wanted to be known. Oh, isn't that too stinking cute? Okay, if after the service you make a line, you can pinch my cheek on my way out or something, okay? Cubby, you see, played the drums with the Mouseketeers. And I always wanted to play the drums. Now, I didn't have any drums then, but I wanted to play them. So what do you use when you don't have drums? You use the Quaker Oatmeal Round container. We have one right now under our cupboard at home. They still make them. And so you know where all of this started, right? Now, something else that I just noticed as I was standing up here. <laughs> I'm in worship, and I look down, and there's a sheet of paper taped to my conga where I can see it. And it's the Quaker Oat Man on the front. And at first I didn't get it. I'm like, what? No. Oh, for the love. Anyway. Thank you to whoever did that, to my congas, but stay away from my congas. All right? Anyway, yeah, cubby, because I always wanted to play the drums. Who knew? Well, here come James and John. And it's not just anybody. It is God incarnate in front of them. And they say, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. And Jesus said, what do you want me to do for you? And they said, grant that we may sit one on your right hand and one on your left in your glory. I, again, I want to see a bubble in Jesus. I just, oh, is that all? I mean, are you kidding me? Even if this wasn't Jesus that these two guys were, were approaching like this? Okay, let's just say it was, it was an earthly employer. Maybe it was their department head. Can you imagine anybody in their right mind going up to a superior to them, even in that little micro kind of scale from what we're talking about, and saying, boss, yeah, listen, I want you to do something for me, whatever I ask. Right. He'd ask it one time. <laughs> Not because he would get what he wanted. I couldn't have arranged that one. Good job, Kelly and AV, man. I mean, you guys are slick. Yeah. Way to go, Libs. Anyway. One thing you have to say about James and John is they had chutzpah. 
So do we really have to wonder about their nickname, the Sons of Thunder? But now think about this. Think about their relationship among the other ten disciples now that this has taken place. If you're one of the other ten and you get a load of these jokers' demands, how's that going to play out now amongst the other ten? They just, they asked, what? No, wait, they didn't ask. They demanded. Okay, I'm, I'm perceiving this didn't go over real big. Can you see that Jesus had some challenges with those he personally selected? And with that, I ask, are you feeling any better about some of your more winning moments as a Christ follower? One question, though, has been answered for us. Remember the argument about who's the greatest in the kingdom? Well, I think we know two people who certainly think they know the answer to that. And as quickly as I come off the criticizing them, justly so, there is an upside. Think about how James and John do believe in Jesus, the Messiah, which is from whence their question, their demand to him derives. Because understanding what it means for the, Messiah, the, the Messianic kingdom to come into earth, Jesus going up to Jerusalem meant, as far as they understood from the Old Testament, that this is when the Jerusalem, the New Jerusalem, all that, the kingdom of heaven on earth was going to be established by the Messiah. So as, as brash and rude and everything else you might say about the demand, they, had, they were starting to put some things together, although their, their eschatology, that is how the end times and everything unfold, was totally whacked out. So we can't fault their sincere desire to follow Jesus and also note that it's remarkable how readily they did in fact walk away from their careers and their belongings when Jesus called them. But oh, the scourge of ambition. Unfortunately, we also know that through history, it is littered with the flotsam and the jetsam of Christ followers who, because of what I'll call uninspired ambition or glory-seeking, believe their own press releases or those of others about how awesome they are. And the ruins of unrealized plans which the Creator desired for a person now lays in a big heap, haunting that one long after the thrill of whatever the particular temptation of ambition was that overtook them is gone. Inspired ambition raises up leaders. Uninspired ambition is a killer. Think of some of the names from the past, only, only three. And when you Google, like, list of fallen Christians, it's, it's, it's disturbing. But you know what I was really surprised at, because you never hear about it, is there was a, a, incorporated into it was a list of fallen individuals as pathetically and horribly as these Christian leaders I'm going to talk about, who were Hindu, who were Buddhist, who were uh, uh, Hare Krishna, um, there were several more in there who were, who were uh, Jews. 
We might remember Ted Haggard. He's probably the most recent one out of Colorado, mega church pastor, found out to have been buying methamphetamines from his homosexual liaison for years. Not a slip, not an oops, not a eh, but for years. And then in what some call round two of the Ted Haggard scandal, his church, the New Life Church, admitted making payments. The church made payments to a young male church member who had apparently an ongoing relationship with the pastor as well. Ambition is a killer. Jimmy Swaggart, probably everybody knows, 1980s televangelist. The daily gross of his ministry, the daily intake for his ministry was $500,000 a day. (laughs) But the scandalous part of it was, was, of course, he was using it for personal means and personal things and all of that. And then he was photographed by a rival TV evangelist with that in and of itself like is like, what? He was photographed leaving a hotel with a prostitute. Not once, but several times. Then there was Robert Tilton, finally another 80s televangelist. The 80s weren't good to televangelists. He was only bringing in a paltry $80 million a year for his ministry. But you know the, the, the even more pathetic thing? I mean, there's something we understand about money and all that. I mean, not, not brushing over that or anything else. But he would, you know, he was a, a name it, claim it kind of preacher, one of those guys, you know, and, and big on prayer and send your prayer requests in. And we pray over each and every prayer request that comes in. They were caught dumping 10,000 pounds of prayer requests. And he was taking money and, and jewelry and personal items that people would send into the ministry for the ministry and taking them for himself and everything else. So Jesus now knows that it's time for a little reality therapy with the twelve. Verse 38, Mark 10, Jesus said to them, he's talking now to James and John in particular, again about their crazy demand. Jesus says to them, You don't know what you're asking by asking to sit, one at my left, one at my right. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink? Or are you able to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And they said to him, We're able. We're men. We're sons of thunder. Of course. We're invincible. There's nothing impossible. We are able. We are able. I know. This reminds me, their response reminds me of the, the depths of the ghastly ignorance that was shouted out by the crowds when Pontius Pilate was there with Jesus, wanting, wanting to release Jesus. And the crowds were shouting, crucify him, crucify him. And Pilate finally, he comes out and ceremonially takes the bowl of water and he puts his hands in. And he symbolically washes his hands and says, I wash my hands of the blood of this man. And the crowds shout out, let his blood be upon us. Which, if you realize what you're saying and doing, is unthinkable. But then they get worse and they say, and on our children. Oh, thank you, mom and dad. 
grandpa and grandma, great-grandfather, great-grandmother. And honestly, and I have no idea if there's anything in this whatsoever, but I do wonder, and I have wondered before this, if the plight of Israel right up until today isn't in some way connected to the ancient Jews saying, let his blood be on us and our children. I don't know. We need to be very careful of what we utter in intense settings. (laughs) Somebody may be recording it. Jesus effectively tries to warn them to smarten up. I've heard this phrase, not, 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 not in the past recent years, but it used to be uh, more, uh, I think, of a, of a cliche of sorts when there was a generalized knowledge of Scripture that was just part of the culture. So we're talking about quite a few years ago. But this idea of you able to drink of the cup, would be used by in secular settings and everything else, meaning something along the lines of, well, you know, until you walk in my shoes, you know, you, you won't really be able to understand or something, some such thing like that. But this is so much more intense. Jesus' allusion is to the cup of judgment and the baptism of being completely immersed, totally engulfed in the punishment for the sins of mankind in totality. Psalm 75 says, For a cup is in the hand of the Lord, and the wine foams, it is well mixed, and He pours out of this, Surely all the wicked of the earth must drain and drink down its dregs, referring to the wrath of God. Sons of thunder, are you able to partake of all that I am going to partake of? And in a stupefyingly naive moment, they say, Yep. you know what? Maybe not as intense, but along the same lines, we see that that unwitting ignorance still today. You ever be talking to somebody, one of your friends, somebody you know or colleague or whatever, about, and somehow, you know, the conversation gets a little too heavy for them. Maybe you start talking about, you know, life, eternal life, what happens after you die, or whatever it is. Tell me you haven't heard this. Well, you know, when I die, I go to hell. What's the rest of it? At least I'm going to be there with my friends. Right? And I want to, I just, if you had any understanding of what you just said, hell's not a place where you're going to be with any of your friends. And even if you were, it would still be a place you don't want to be at. The disciples' answer shows again just how daft their understanding of Jesus' real purpose and full purpose in coming is. Are you able to drink the cup I am to drink? If you have seen Mel Gibson's Passion of the Christ, you have seen, in my opinion, in my lifetime anyway, the best depiction of the suffering of Christ in cinematographic form. Bar none. But you know what? The thing that we don't realize, I don't believe, is that that pales 
into the suffering that Jesus experienced when the Father separated Himself from the Son on the cross. Rarely do we consider the magnitude of what is commonly called the cry of dereliction. It comes right out of Psalm 22. Jesus was quoting it from the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The rest of the Old Testament verse that Christ was quoting says this, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Far from my deliverance are the words of my groaning. The cry of dereliction of Jesus on the cross was the apex of what Jesus endured on behalf of we sinners. And one Reformed theology site that I went to just had such a short but awesome way of capturing this. Quoting, Only one person has truly understood the words that Christ said on the cross, Eli, Eli, lama sebaktani. That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That person was Christ himself. The rest of us are left to try our best in comprehending this heaven-rending, heart-melting, loud cry. But we fall so very short in understanding this burden that was placed on Christ. A burden heavier than 10,000 crosses that caused him to break out in a loud cry of dereliction that would have stunned heaven into silence. This type of desertion includes the withdrawing of God's favor and grace. The removal of these blessings is the practical removal of God. Though God removed his favor from his son, Christ remained obedient. And as someone once quipped, God was never more happy with his son than when he was most angry with him. And you, sons of thunder, are you able to do what I am about to do? Sure. And Jesus said unto them, You shall indeed drink of the cup that I drink of, and with the baptism that I am baptized with, you shall be baptized And his next statement comes from the fact that this side of heaven, Jesus was always submitting himself to the Father. But to sit on my right hand and on my left hand is not mine to give, but it shall be given to them for whom it is prepared. Now remember my question earlier about how John and James' query of Jesus, I should say demand of Jesus, went over with the other ten? Verse 41 tells us, in an ever so understated way. And when the ten heard of it, they began to be much displeased. Really? Oh, we are really angry now. Oh, they were, they were rip-snorting. They were ticked off. They were like, are you kidding me? You arrogant, even amongst us. Ugh. And isn't that just peachy now? The march toward the earthly end of the Messiah and his hand-picked team is falling apart in abject disunity. 
So Jesus summons them together for a little pep talk and for some team building. Again, in my crazy imagination, I picture Jesus telling them to get there. Okay, guys, you know what? We need to get over this now. We need to bind back together again. We're going to go to this ropes course, and you guys are going to have to help each other navigate the obstacles there. Right? You've seen that kind of thing. Corporates, you know, corporations sometimes do that and everything. But here's how I picture it going down. Just me. Not inspired. In case you didn't know. So he takes them over to this stone wall. It's maybe this high off the ground. And he says, James and John, you guys hop up on this wall here. Stand up there and turn around. Face that way. Now the other ten are back here. Here's the two that they are royally ticked off with. He says, okay, uh, Peter, Bartholomew, Andrew, you guys go there and stand behind them. Okay, James and John, here's what you're going to do. You're going to close your eyes, and you're going to fall backward and just trust yourself into the arms of your, your colleagues who are royally ticked off at you. Okay, ready? Go. <laughs> See, Peter. Uh, oh, oops. Yeah. <laughs> Calling them to himself. Jesus said to them, You know that those who are recognized as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great men exercise authority over them. These are such pointed words because they are directed at all of them, but in the immediate, particularly at James and John, who demanded to be seated in the places of what? Of power and of authority and of prestige on either side of the Lord as he comes in his kingdom. And in a very barbed way, Jesus likens their attitude as bad as those whom they despise in their own culture precisely because they flaunt their position and their power and their prestige over the little people. And James and John were imitating the same very bad behavior that they despise in others. So he calls them out and he brings them all now to the center yet again with hopeful, positive affirmation. But it's not this way among you. As if to say, but I'm not going to have this among you, so it's not going to be this way among you, is it? (laughs) Let's kiss and make up. But just remember this, whoever wishes to become great among you shall become your servant. Oh, you see the feet now start shuffling. Yeah, fat chance. And whomever wishes to be first among you shall be slave of all. You see Peter again. Yeah, yeah. I'm gonna, I'm gonna be the handmaiden of James or John. Right? You'll see that. Jesus knows what he's doing. He's hitting to the heart of the matter, which is the sinful arrogance of men. If you really have illusions of sitting anywhere near me in the kingdom, just as in this life, you get raised up as you work at putting yourself down. Not in the sense of of calling yourself names or thinking bad or evil of yourself, but making others who you work for, with, whatever, look good. Making them look better maybe even than what they are. Making yourself at their disposal Humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God 
1 Peter chapter 5, verse 6. Humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that in due time, that in due time, in His time, He may exalt you. I memorized that verse over 40 years ago, very early on when I was a very young Christian. And I can tell you it's an easy verse to memorize. It's a much more challenging verse to live out. I'm going to ask uh, Jim Higgs to come on up, make his way up. If you wish to be first, you will be last. Whoever will be last shall be first. Those paradoxes that I talked about last week in the kingdom of God, he's a good God. He's a mysterious God. He's a smart God. And oh, is he a patient God, as this passage and so many others lets us know and lets me know. And it is truly because of episodes like this that when I am in those weak places in those weak times, oftentimes out loud giving God a piece of my mind that I can ill afford to give away, he doesn't just say, it's time. It's time for a trip for you. Have you ever seen Neptune? Hmm? Goodbye. (laughs) See, that's just my head. That's reacting the way I would to me as a human being. But Jesus deals certainly, gently, but to the heart and the core of who we are. And we fall on our faces before him in grace and mercy for his kindness and his love. Know this Jesus today. Let me have you stand. Dear Heavenly Father, this morning, each one of us, a message has been given to us right to our heart, right to where we've been hiding. Father, there may be somebody here this morning and heard the message that hell is not a place that you want to go. It's not a fun place. Father, we just ask that the Holy Spirit speak to that person where they are. They realize how stepping from hell into the kingdom is so easy. It's accepting you as Savior, repenting of the sin, making you Lord of their life. Father, we pray for our young people that are here today. They go out into the culture, in the schools, and into the cities and towns. Pray that you will protect them. Sometimes they're right on the front, being enticed, being tempted. Father, give them supernatural strength to be able to stand with you as they know you as Savior. All these things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.